Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 43 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome NASA cosmologist Jason Rhodes from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena as this week's special guest. Rhodes earned his PhD in physics from Princeton University in New Jersey. Then, after stints as a postdoctoral researcher at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland and Caltech in Pasadena, he landed at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in 2004. His research projects since have included NASA's forthcoming Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, formerly WFIRST, the European Space Agency's upcoming Euclid mission, and the Legacy Survey of Space and Time, or LSST, which will be part of the ground-based Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile, which is due for first light in 2022. But today, among other things, we'll be discussing how and why galaxy surveys as we know them may be coming to an end. Rhodes joins us from Pasadena. So, Jason, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks, Bruce, for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today about galaxy surveys. Okay, so first off, before we get to current galaxy surveys, let's look back at the history of galaxy surveys. After all, it's been less than 100 years since astronomers first recognized that we live in a so-called galaxy that was just one of many. Yes, that's right. And in fact, 101 years ago next month, in April 1920, uh, there was what was called the Great Debate in Astronomy. And it was a debate uh, held by two preeminent astronomers at the time, Harlow Shapley and Heber Curtis. And the debate took place at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. And the debate was really about the size of the universe. Uh, Telescopes at that time had discovered that we lived in uh, what we call the Milky Way galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars. Uh, And most astronomers at the time thought that that was the entire universe. But the best telescopes of the day were seeing small, wispy, cloud-like structures that looked like they were at the edge of the uh, Milky Way galaxy. And they called these nebula, which is the uh, Latin word for cloud. Uh, Shapley thought that these were just clouds of gas at the outer edges of uh, our Milky Way. But Curtis had another idea. He thought these were distant galaxies, much like our own Milky Way galaxy, but very far away. And Shapley, uh, along with many astronomers, said they just couldn't believe that that was the case, because if that was the case, the universe was almost unimaginably large to have these distant galaxies, or what they called at the time, island universes. Because they thought that the Milky Way was the whole universe, to come up with the idea that there were other galaxies was almost like saying there are other universes out there. But uh, over the 10 years after that debate, uh, it became very obvious to a number of astronomers, including Edwin Hubble, who has the famous Hubble Space Telescope named after him, that these uh, nebula were in fact distant galaxies and the universe is almost unimaginably large. But uh, I say almost unimaginably because in the ensuing 100 years, we've got a pretty good idea about the size of the visible universe. And while it's almost unimaginably large, it is finite. The universe may be infinite, but what I'm really saying is that the uh, observable universe is finite. That is, 
the universe uh, that we can see and could have had an effect on us here uh, is finite. And that's partly because we think that the universe started, uh, the observable universe started about 13.7 billion years ago in a big bang and has been expanding since then. And so nothing uh, beyond the scope of the light that could have come from the big bang uh, is something that we can observe. So there is a limit to the observable universe that we can see uh, or we could hope to see with any future telescope uh, and uh, the universe that could affect things that we can see as well. And off the top of my head, I mean, the universe, depending on whose uh, uh, figures you go by, either 13.7 or 13.8 billion years old, the observable universe that we can actually observe is about 30 to 40 billion light years across. I, I I believe that's correct, and that's because... Uh, the universe has been expanding since the time of the Big Bang. And one of the really exciting things we've found uh, in the last 20 or 25 years is that that expansion of the universe has been getting faster and faster in recent times. And when I say recent times, uh, I'm talking about the last few billion years, recent in the scale of the universe. And that was counterintuitive at the time that we found this uh, 25 or so years ago, that this expansion would be accelerating. And we give the name of whatever's causing that accelerating expansion, we call that dark energy. That's the substance or property of the universe that's causing it to expand faster and faster. But we really don't know what that is. That's right. And we discussed that in a previous podcast, so we're not going to talk too much about that today. But let's get back to galaxies. So how would you... How do you, if, if if someone came up to you and said, uh, Jason, what's a galaxy? How do you define a galaxy? Well, the typical way that astronomers de- define a galaxy is by saying a galaxy is something like our own Milky Way galaxy, which has a uh, hundred billion or a few hundred billion stars. So when we think of galaxies, uh, that's what we really think of: something with. Uh, many uh, hundreds uh, uh, of billions of stars. Well, sorry, several hundreds of billions of stars. Uh, But galaxies can also be much smaller than that. Uh, And we think in the very early universe, uh, the idea of what is a galaxy and what's a collection of stars isn't really well defined. You could imagine in the very early universe, there could have been galaxies with just a few hundred stars. And one of the things that we're finding is that our own Milky Way galaxy has uh, companion galaxies, dwarf galaxies that are much smaller. And we can see some of these, for instance, in the southern sky, the Magellanic Clouds are dwarf galaxies uh, orbiting our own Milky Way, which are much smaller. Our nearest grand spiral neighbor is Andromeda. We are in what is called the local group of galaxies. Can you tell us about the local group of galaxies and roughly how many galaxies are in this group and, and, and how our own Milky Way stacks up? Yeah, the local group is uh, made up of uh, our Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy, which, uh, as you mentioned, is a is a galaxy that's similar, another spiral galaxy, but even bigger than our uh, Milky Way galaxy. And then a number of smaller galaxies that are sort of satellite systems to both the Milky Way and uh, the Andromeda galaxy. And we're discovering more and more of these uh, satellite systems all the time because some of them are quite small and quite faint. And so even though they're relatively close to us in uh, the scheme of the universe, they're still hard to see because they're small and faint. 
So overall, the uh, local group has a couple of dozen uh, galaxies, uh, including our Milky Way and Andromeda as the two biggest. 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the paradigm was that galaxies form maybe 2 billion years after the Big Bang. And then as our observations got better, we, we kept pushing back the formation era of galaxies as we know them to further and further back uh, to, uh, toward the beginning of time. If I'm not incorrect, I think from uh, one of your own papers, you write that uh, the first galaxies likely formed five, only 500 million years after the Big Bang. That's right. So the first galaxies uh, formed, you know, in, the, in some of the earlier stages of the universe when it was only a few percent uh, of its current age. And of course, they weren't uh, huge galaxies like we see uh, with the Milky Way and the Andromeda. They were much uh, smaller galaxies. Uh, so smaller, even back then, they they small and faint. And what we've seen is that galaxies tended to merge through gravity. Uh, these small, faint galaxies would merge together and form bigger and bigger galaxies until we see the, the, the big grand spirals and large elliptical galaxies that we see in the universe uh, relatively close to us today. How have galaxy surveys changed over the decades? Well, certainly uh, in the 1920s, Hubble uh, was using the telescope at Mount Wilson to study a handful uh, of galaxies. And in that sense, you could call that a galaxy uh, survey. And he was the first uh, or among the first to use galaxies to show that the universe was expanding, which was a, a very revolutionary idea at the time and really cemented the idea that the universe had a, a, a beginning in the Big Bang and wasn't uh, an eternal and static uh, universe, as many people uh, at the time thought. So uh, Hubble did some of the really important early work uh, in surveying these galaxies. And again, by today's standards, it was only a handful of galaxies, but it was enough to really revolutionize the way we understood the universe. So since the very beginning of galaxy surveys, uh, the galaxy surveys themselves have had sort of a dual purpose. And uh, that continues today. And I'll tell you what that dual purpose is. Is one, uh, we want to understand the galaxies. How did they form and how did they evolve? And that's uh, what science we call galaxy evolution. Understanding how stars form into galaxies and how galaxies continue to form new stars even today. So that's one reason we do these galaxy surveys, to learn about the galaxies themselves. But another reason we do these galaxy surveys is that the galaxies themselves are good uh, markers for what's happening in the universe as a whole. And so what Hubble did is he used the galaxies as points in time and space and showed that the universe was expanding. And we still do that. We still use uh, galaxies as markers uh, uh, of what's going on in the universe. The study of cosmology, the universe as a whole, uses galaxies uh, in, in ways that we can find out how has the universe expanded. How, we know now that that expansion is accelerating, and we can use galaxies to study the effects of this dark energy. And of course, uh, most of the matter in the universe is a matter we call dark matter. Uh, and so we can use galaxies to study dark matter as well. And it's known that... Uh Galaxies are basically gravitationally bound entities which bind huge uh, collections of stars. But 
the theory as it goes today is that without dark matter, these galaxies would not exist because uh, there's just not enough gravity to bind the, the amount of stars that we see. Is that right? That's exactly right. In, in a way, um, we're using the galaxies as a, um, a, a way to study where the dark matter is because we know that there's much more dark matter out there in the universe than the normal matter that makes up, for instance, the stars that shine that allow us to see the galaxy because we can look at uh, a couple of things. One, we could look at how any individual galaxy uh, is rotating and the rotation of that galaxy tells us that there's more mass in that galaxy than just what we would see in the stars and the dust of the galaxy. And we call that extra mass dark matter. And the rotation of galaxies and looking at those is one of the ways that uh, scientists like Vera Rubin uh, in the past 50 years have uh, really shown us that dark matter is the predominant form of matter in the universe. Now, the second thing we can do is we can look at the galaxies' motions relative to each other. And galaxies are moving relative to each other in a way that, again, indicates it's not just the, the stars and the visible matter out there. There's a lot of dark matter uh, because we know that if there wasn't this dark matter, the galaxies wouldn't be moving and behaving and evolving the way that we see them. And But the interesting thing is you can't really separate these three elements. I mean, you can't just do a galaxy survey without taking into account dark matter. And then if you're looking at these uh, galaxies over cosmic time, you also have to factor in how dark energy and the accelerating universe, not just the Hubble expansion, which is a natural expansion of the universe, as you mentioned earlier, but it's this acceleration of the universe caused by dark energy. These all these three elements all go together. You can't really separate them out. You can't really separate them out, can you? You can't really separate them out. Um, and so that's why we have to uh, study various aspects of the galaxies. That is, what they look like, how big they are, how bright they are, their colors, uh, and how they're moving, uh, because we want to find out about the, the normal matter, that is, the, the stars and the dust in the galaxy. But as you said, we also want to find out about the dark matter uh, and the dark energy. And all we are able to observe is the photons coming from the galaxies. So we observe these galaxies, and they're proxies for those other aspects of the universe that we also want to study, the dark aspects of the universe, dark matter and dark energy. And that's why galaxies are so important. They're the part of the universe that we can see, and they're the only part of the universe that, in this type of science that we can observe to tell us what's going on with the rest of the universe. So when Edwin Hubble was first observing uh, galaxies with the 100-inch uh, Hooker telescope at Mount Wilson, uh, what was he actually looking for within these galaxies? Was he just looking at the disk of the galaxy as a whole, or was he looking for supernovae? Uh, was he looking for bright uh, variable stars? Right. So, so what Hubble did uh, was he would take um, a spectra of the galaxy. That's when you look at uh, a, an astronomical object, you look at the light coming, and you separate it into its various uh, components. And the reason he did this is that uh, by doing that, you can tell uh, if a galaxy is moving towards us or moving away from us. And this is called the Doppler shift. Now, the Doppler shift is something that uh, in sound uh, we can hear um, 
for instance, if there's a, a, a fire truck uh, with a siren going, it sounds different coming towards us than going away from us because the uh, sound waves kind of pile up uh, when they're coming towards us and get stretched out when it's going away from us. So you can tell without even seeing a fire truck, whether it's coming towards you or away, by the sound of the siren. In the same way, looking at galaxies, if the galaxy's light is shifted to the red, that is longer wavelengths, it's moving away from us. If the galaxy's light is shifted to the blue, it's moving towards us. And what Hubble found is that all of the distant galaxies were red-shifted. That means all distant galaxies that Hubble studied were moving away from us. Now, in a just random universe, you would expect some galaxies to be moving away and some galaxies to be moving towards us. But in a universe that's expanding, you would see all galaxies moving away because of the expansion of the universe. And so that's what Hubble did, is he took these spectra to get uh, the detailed colors of the galaxies and found out that all of the galaxies were what he called redshifted and moving away from us. But within More our, importantly, uh, he found that the further away a galaxy was from us, the more it was redshifted. And that allowed us to do what we do now, is we use that redshift to actually measure the distance to the galaxy. When we measure the spectrum of a galaxy, the amount that the light is redshifted tells us how far away that galaxy is. It's much easier to measure the spectra and determine the distance of a given galaxy or any object from the ground than it is from space. Isn't that right? Because you have large, much larger spectrographs on ground well, base. Not, not necessarily. So there, not are, necessarily. there are real advantages to uh, ground-based telescopes and uh, space-based telescopes. I'll give you some of the advantages. So from the ground, we can typically afford to build larger uh, telescopes. Now, in the optical uh, or near-infrared, that is, wavelengths about what we see, the largest uh, telescope out there is the Hubble Space Telescope, which is about two and a half meters across. Of course, later this year, we'll launch the James Webb Space Telescope, which is about six and a half meters uh, across uh, its mirror. Uh -huh. But ground-based telescopes now, the best ground-based telescopes are already 10 meters across, and we have plans, we're building from the ground, telescopes that are 30 meters across. And so in some ways, you can imagine that a much larger mirror just collects more photons. It's like a bucket to collect the photons. So it's easier to get lots and lots of photons from a larger mirror. Uh, there are other complications uh, due to the atmosphere. The atmosphere absorbs some of the light coming from distant galaxies, uh, and especially in the infrared, that is, uh, longer wavelengths than what we see, the atmosphere really starts to absorb a lot of that light. Uh, and uh, we also see that the atmosphere scatters light. That's why stars appear to twinkle. So stars themselves aren't twinkling. It's the light passing through that atmosphere that gives the stars the twinkle. So there are pros and cons to, to both uh, ground and, and space-based telescopes. And historically, uh, galaxy surveys and even other areas of uh, astrophysics have managed to use the particular ground and space telescopes to their best advantage together 
to do uh, these types of surveys. That That's, is, we often so, combine the data from the two right, so to I get was, the best. So what I was re referring yeah. to, for instance, with the Hubble, the Hubble would spot a very distant object and then a ground, a large ground-based telescope like the Keck or the VLT can go and and actually uh, follow up with this ob with, and with observations of the object. And because it inherently has much larger uh, spectrographic capabilities than a space-based telescope, it it has an easier time of actually getting a distance measurement. Well, you're not you're not wrong. So um, it's not so much the uh, spectrograph or the instrument that is uh, more powerful from the ground. It's the fact that um, the ground-based telescope is so much bigger. And so, if you want to compare, for instance, the Hubble Space Telescope at two and a half meters to a ground-based telescope uh, at ten meters, it's not the the width of the mirror that really makes the difference. It's the total area, which goes as the square of the width. So in terms of mirror area, uh, these ground-based telescopes aren't a factor of four bigger. They're a factor of 16 bigger. Uh, and so that's why uh, oftentimes uh, for these very faint uh, objects, we just can't get enough light from the smaller Hubble Space Telescope compared to what we could get from, uh, for instance, the Keck Telescope on the ground. But in the contemporary era... Uh, the, the Hubble Space Telescope just kind of like revolutionized what we know about dist the distant universe and particularly the, the, the field of galaxies in any uh, telescope's field of view. Uh, the Hubble Deep Field, for instance, kind of rewrote the book on what we know about the sheer numbers of galaxies. Can, can you explain how Hubble did its first deep field survey for galaxies in the, the constellation uh, Ursa Major? Every year, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope uh, makes a, what we call a call for proposals. That is, any scientist anywhere in the world can propose to use the Hubble Space Telescope to do uh, their research. And uh, a, a group of peers, uh, experts, gets together and picks uh, what they feel are the best and most meritorious proposals and gives them time on the Hubble. Uh, but back in, in the 1990s, the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute, which runs the Hubble Space Telescope, decided to take some of that time and do a, a, a community survey, not uh, one of the competed surveys from the astronomy community, but just a, a competed survey. And this was somewhat controversial at the time, because rather than say, I want to look at this object or that object, uh, what they did is they said, I want to look at a relatively blank part of the sky for a very long time, weeks at a time, just collecting as many photons as we can. And that uh, field eventually became the Hubble uh, deep field. Uh, and so uh, pointing the Hubble at a certain spot on the sky where we didn't uh, know necessarily if there was anything there uh, for weeks at a time, uh, when the final uh, data came in and they processed it and, and made the image, it turned out in this very, very tiny uh, part of the sky that would be about the amount of sky that's the eye on a dime held on at arm's length. So Good that's gosh. about the area of the sky of the uh, <laughs> Hubble Deep Field had and, thousands of galaxies in it. And that was a so two, if you say that was a that's, that was a two week. I mean, it, it was a two week. Uh, observation right i mean you literally pointed the telescope for for basically two weeks at that's this right. at this field right yes and just kept uh, kept collecting the, the the photons uh for for the the entire time and 
many thousands of galaxies were in this one tiny area on the sky. And since this wasn't a special area of the sky uh, that we thought would have lots of galaxies, we could extrapolate and say that anywhere you looked on the sky, uh, there would be that many galaxies in a small area of the sky. And it turns out uh, that there's hundreds of billions of galaxies uh, in the universe uh, based on the, the Hubble deep field. Now, so, so, that's so, based on so what explain, we saw there. So explain to the listener how a, a traditional observation, uh, uh, optical telescope like the Keck or, or the VLT in Chile, if they're doing these deep surveys, they are hamstrung by the, you know, by the, the length of, of the night. Whereas the Hubble, the beauty of, the, of a space telescope is uh, with baffling, you know, you are shielded from the sunlight uh, at any given time. Well, not quite. Um, and, and the reason is that the Hubble is in low Earth orbit. So it's still relatively close to uh, the Earth. Oh, okay. And what that means is in any 90-minute orbit of the Hubble Space Telescope, um, it's only able to look at a spot on the sky for maybe 45 of those minutes. Um, and so Hubble, uh, while uh, more efficient than, than ground-based telescopes, doesn't have anything close to uh, 100% efficiency. Only about half of the time in a typical Hubble observation, uh, uh, only about half of the orbit uh, is the Hubble open and looking at the sky and getting uh, useful uh, photons for astronomy. Even though uh, it's even though it could be pointed on one field, like the Hubble Deep Field, only half. That's the, right. And, that's and, right. And why is that again? Well, it's because um, the Earth is still in the way about half the time. Uh, okay. Uh, so, because it's in what we call low Earth uh, low Earth orbit, orbiting the Earth every ninety minutes. And this problem is solved when you go to a higher orbit or uh, an Earth Sun uh, Lagrangian point, which is a gravitational point of stability, right? That's right. So uh, telescopes like uh, the James Webb Space Telescope and uh, a couple of telescopes that I work on, the, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, which is expected to uh, be a NASA launch in the middle of uh, this decade, and the European Space Agency's Euclid Telescope, all of these newer space telescopes will go to the uh, Lagrange Point 2, which is beyond the orbit of the moon. And so it's very dark, very stable there, and the telescopes there really can point at a certain spot uh, on the sky for, for many weeks uh, at a time uh, without the Earth or other things getting in the way. In even more recent years, since the, the Hubble uh, deep fields were taken you know, 20-some years ago, uh, we've come to realize that uh, the number of uh, these dwarf or smaller galaxies is probably significantly larger than the number of these full-size galaxies that we see. So really, the number of galaxies in the universe could be a trillion or more. That is, uh, um, a thousand uh, billion or more. Good gosh. So how will the James Webb Space Telescope help with galaxy surveys? Well, the Hubble... Uh, one of the things with the Hubble is it doesn't survey a large area of the sky, uh, but with a small area of the sky it, it surveys, it can look very deep. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope will be similar in that it can survey only a small area of the sky, but it can go very, very deep. Uh, and in fact, the James Webb Space Telescope 
is uh, big enough to, over a small area of the sky, to survey probably some of the very earliest, uh, faintest, uh, uh, full-size galaxies in the universe. Really look at the, the uh, earliest uh, stages of galaxy formation. Uh, so that's going to be a first for us because uh, ground-based telescopes just don't have uh, what we call the resolution. They can't see things fine enough because of the blurring of the atmosphere. So the James Webb Space Telescope is going to give us some of our uh, deepest views of uh, galaxies in the earliest parts of uh, galaxy formation. And you write in a paper that appeared in the Astro Astronomical Journal. Has it appeared or is it about to appear? I don't. It, I, it has appeared, yes. It has appeared, yeah. That over the course of the next decade, optical and near-infrared NIR sky surveys will reach increasing depths over much of the sky, measuring spectra from some 2 billion galaxies. But that's only 1% of the 140 billion galaxies in the visible universe. So, so that's that, this, this, I guess, discrepancy between what we might consider a full-size galaxy, a galaxy uh, that's uh, roughly the size of the Milky Way. And uh, if we think of that, we think that there's something of order 100 billion of galaxies, 100 billion galaxies in the universe of that size. But as I said, we're discovering more and more that there's these much smaller, what we call dwarf galaxies. And that's where there might be... Uh, uh, a trillion or more total galaxies. Uh, and so one of the, the things that's very uncertain is just how many of those dwarf galaxies uh, there are. We're reasonably certain uh, that uh, we know how many of these full-size or Milky Way-size galaxies there are uh, because we've done things like the Hubble uh, Deep Field and its successor deep fields that have looked uh, very far into the past uh, at, to the time uh, when, the earliest time when galaxies that large could have formed. But as we talked about earlier, the very earliest galaxies were very small, maybe just a, a handful of uh, hundreds of stars. And so we're not able to see those yet. So we just don't know how many of those uh, are out there in the universe. But in full, so it's a, but in a full, lot of uncertainty still. But in full-size galaxies like our own, I mean... If you go back and you look at a, an astronomy textbook, say from 30 or 40 years ago, you'll see the number of stars in our own our own Milky Way galaxy, which is considered to be it's a beautiful galaxy. Apparently, uh, we're inside it, so we can't really see it fully, uh, but uh, apparently it's a it's a grand spiral, a big one. Conservatively, if you go back and look at old old astronomy textbooks, you'll see the number 100 billion as kind of a conservative estimate. And when I was writing my book uh, 20 years ago, I would ask astronomers, and at that time the the uh, conventional value was 200 billion. If you really talk, if you really press the, the the astronomers, they would say, "Hey, you know, I think really there are probably 400 billion stars in our galaxy." Yeah, I'm going to take take sort of a a, a way out here, and uh, <laughs> okay. uh, but but hopefully a somewhat uh, informative way out here, and say that. Uh, my, my area of expertise is in cosmology, the study of a universe, the universe as a whole. And so, as I mentioned before, what we do uh, in that 
type of study is we use the galaxies as a proxy for uh, the, the, the things that we want to study about the universe, the amount of matter, the amount of dark matter, the amount of dark energy. Uh-huh. And so I'm not so concerned uh, in, in that type of study. I'm not so concerned whether the, uh, the Milky Way or something like the Milky Way has 200 billion stars or 400 billion stars. Certainly there are astronomers who, who want to pin down that number. But for the, the questions that, that I'm most interested in, what I want to know is how many galaxies of about the same brightness as the Milky Way uh, are there? Uh, so I, I'm not going to take a strong stance on, on who's right in terms of the number, the exact number of stars in the Milky Way. But, but I would will you say th- but it's a few hundred billion. A few hundred billion. So uh, yeah. uh, 100 is a little bit low. So you think between two and 400 is a good ballpark. Yeah, I, if if uh, if I was a, a betting a betting man, I would say between two and four hundred billion sounds about right. Taking these galaxy surveys, do they enable you to trace cosmic matter across cosmic time? In other words, do they help reveal the cosmic web itself? Yes, exactly. And in fact, the only way we can currently uh, reveal this cosmic web. That is the the intricate web of uh, visible and and uh, dark matter that makes up our universe is by observing the galaxies. We can't directly observe the dark matter, so we use those galaxies uh, as proxies for where the dark matter is. So it's really measuring the positions uh, and motions of galaxies that tells us about the the cosmic web or the structure. Uh, that we see in the universe. And the cosmic web, I mean, when we are able to observe it in the ultraviolet, if I'm not incorrect, I mean, it it literally looks like uh, a web, like a spider's web almost. Uh, And there also have been comparisons to neural networks where you have these long filaments of of matter that that are embedded with galaxy clusters. Is that right? That's exactly right. And one of the exciting things we've seen in the last few decades is that we, of course, go and observe that cosmic web. But at the same time, there's a a branch of astrophysics that is simulating the universe. And what that branch of astrophysics does is it takes some of the most powerful computers uh, in in the world uh, and it gives them the initial conditions of the universe in the very early universe and says there's some uh, mass uh, some, some, some matter, some dark matter, and some uh, equations uh, that tell us how it evolves, and of course dark energy, and they let that simulation evolve, and what we see is uh, uh, in those simulations is a cosmic web uh, forming. And so what's really exciting is that we are observing something that is uh, uh, very close to what we simulate on computers. And what that tells us is that those equations and the amount of dark matter and dark energy we put in are probably about right, because if they were way off, those simulations would show something very different. So we think we understand pretty much how uh, the universe uh, evolves uh, over time. But uh, as you know, there are some tantalizing, uh, for scientists, some tantalizing discrepancies. And that's what uh, scientists want to poke at. We want to poke at the parts that just don't quite fit and show us something different than what we thought we might see. So you and colleagues uh, write an astronomical journal that uh, you're advocating a path to end 
ending this era of galaxy surveys by making definitive measurements of the galaxy population in the optical and the near-infrared spectrums, thereby creating a map of galaxies and their associated dark matter throughout the entire visible universe, literally from the dawn of the first galaxies a mere 500 million years after the Big Bang to the present day. What would this mean for our understanding of the cosmos if we if if what you propose comes about that, that's a great question and it's really the heart of this of this uh kind of fun paper we we wrote this paper we wrote was somewhat speculative uh in the following sense that uh i'm involved in a number of missions to develop the next galaxy survey and of course i and some of my uh colleagues are thinking what's next after that so we asked a sort of different question with this paper. We said, what would be the last galaxy survey we would ever need to do or ever want to do? And the way we approached this is we said, okay, there are certain questions about the universe that can be uh, studied by measuring galaxies, some property of galaxies, say their, their color or their shape, uh, their position or their motion. Uh, there are a number of questions that we can answer by measuring those things. Uh, but given that the visible universe is finite, uh, the amount of information we have in galaxies that's relevant to those questions is also finite. So what would it take for us to gather all of the relevant information, all of the information that would allow us to answer those questions? What size of telescope and what type of survey would that telescope uh, take? And so that was the, the approach we took in this paper, is to say, uh, what telescope could we theoretically build someday which would get all the information about galaxies that's relevant for these questions we have today? So you note that there are two ways uh, to go about uh, surveying galaxies. One, you use an all-sky wide-field survey, and the other is a deep, narrow field. So let's start with the wide-field uh, survey. Would that be something like the, uh, the Vera Rubin Observatory, a, a very wide field telescope? Yes. In fact, that's a, a great uh, example. This is a ground-based telescope uh, that's being built now, uh, the Vera Rubin Observatory, that will go uh, on sky in the next year or two. That, that means it will start taking observations in the next year or two. And it will uh, take observations of about half the sky every few days for 10 years. So over and over and over, it goes to the images half of the sky and then does it again every few days to get a very, very uh, deep picture of the galaxies in the universe. And so what we were advocating was building a space telescope that could do that much deeper at a much higher resolution uh, and take images of about half of the sky. Uh, and the reason we say half of the sky is that our own Milky Way galaxy, with its hundreds of billions of stars, obscures uh, part of the, the sky that we just can't see through it. Uh, it's like uh, we're in the Milky Way galaxy and we have a window where we can look out, much like if you're in your house, you have a window if you look out. But if you were to turn the other way and there's no window, you can't see what's on the other side of your house. So we can only uh, look out uh, at about half of the sky, but if we wanted to get all the information encoded in the shapes and positions and velocities of galaxies, we would want to look at that half of the sky as deeply as possible. How deep we would go is we would go until there's really no more information to be gained 
uh, by looking uh, at uh, galaxies. That is, we would try to look at uh, the bulk of the galaxies in the universe, even the faint early galaxies over all of the sky uh, that's visible, that's about half of the sky that's visible to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in doing so, we would get all the information that's available from galaxies. We're advocating that if someday someone were able to build a 200-meter space telescope that would be able to gather all of the relevant information uh, in, uh, coded in galaxies uh, for, for instance, studying cosmology, studying dark matter and dark energy. Right. And then uh, the deep uh, image that we're talking about is that if you wanted to look at uh, the very earliest uh, formations of uh, a few dozen stars that we might call the earliest proto-galaxies, you'd have to stare very, very deep at one point in space for a long time with this similarly very large, something like 200-meter space telescope uh, to get uh, images, uh, resolved images of a few dozen stars that are some of the earliest stars in the universe. I've heard some people proposing, you know, maybe a, a 30 meter telescope in in optical telescope in space, but 280 meters. I mean, you just said 200 meters, but 280 meters. I mean, that's just in, that just sounds insane. I mean, what would that that would have to be what some like a Bigelow styled uh, plastic. You you could not use a traditional mirror. You would have to use some sort of reflective plastic or something. I don't know. I mean, something that's probably not even available now, right? That's right. And so this was one of the the goals uh, of this study that we did was not to advocate for a certain size of telescope. We came at it a different way. We said if we wanted to observe all of the relevant information in galaxies and we wanted to do it in, for instance, 10 years, we didn't want to take a thousand years to do it. We want to do it in 10 years. Uh, what size mirror would we need? This, and okay, so this mirror, is a, a thought experiment, uh, just doing it in, ten, in, in a decade's time. This is, what, this is what you would actually need. This is not, you're not saying that this is a short-term goal of anyone. This is just uh, the equipment that you would need to be able to extract this information. Is that right? That, that's exactly right. And so it's not our goal to propose to NASA or anyone else that next year we go start building a 200-meter space telescope. Rather, it's to say that uh, if we continue uh, the, the, what we've been doing over the last hundred years, which is to take better and better galaxy surveys, eventually we will reach the point in which we want to do the final galaxy survey, and this is what it would take. And so then I took this paper, uh, and what I've been doing is I've been talking to uh, some of the most... Uh, Um, uh, enterprising and uh, forward-thinking engineers I could find and saying, what would would be the path towards, say, 50 years from now being able to build this? What do we need to do in the next 10 and 20 and 30 years so that 50 years from now somebody could build this? Okay. I think in the promo that that I put online for social media, I said, well, maybe in a in 25 years time you know this could be possible <laughs> about that that's a bit over ambitious uh so i i guess uh in 50 years time if things go well and we are uh and access to space has become uh, democratized and you have a lot of subcontractors who are very innovative that could sign on with nasa and maybe nasa could spearhead this 
So you estimate maybe a two hundred class, a two hundred meter class space telescope that could do a optical and near infrared survey. The end all surveys would happen uh, where twenty twenty one by uh, twenty seventy one, something like that. Well, the the fifty years is kind of. I'll tell you how we can. I came up with fifty years is uh, a couple ways. One, you know, you you mentioned twenty five years. But I know for a fact from experience that 25 years uh, is sometimes the, the uh, idea to execution time of actual NASA missions. Uh, and <laughs> okay. so uh, we're not ready to sort of think about how we execute this. So I don't think it's going to happen in 25 years. Um, and certainly with the, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope and the Hubble Space Telescope before it, the... Uh, uh, first serious thought about those telescopes to getting them in orbit is, you know, of order 25 years. So I don't think we're ready to, to start something that would uh, bear fruit in 25 years. And if I say 50 years, um, it puts it beyond the, the professional lifetime of, of me and my colleagues. So it's, uh, it's not a problem we, we are expected to, to solve. So that's why 50 years seems kind of a, a safe uh, a safe number, oh, but okay. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's thirty years, and maybe it's a hundred years. But what we really wanted to do is we wanted to run through the math and say, "Here's what it would take," uh, and then throw it out there for the community to think about: Is this a path we want to embark on? And certainly, we would do other telescopes and other surveys along the way. No one is uh, uh, so naive to think that we would just jump to this. This final survey, but the the key uh, thing here is that if we still have questions about how galaxies work or cosmology or how the universe works after doing this survey that we uh, advocate, we have to think of other ways of uh, addressing those questions because there just won't be any more information encoded in the the shapes and positions and velocities of galaxies. We will have exhausted that as a potential source of information about these questions. Yeah, I got you. And I guess we can all look forward to that. What about in the, in the nearer term, there are a couple of innovative ideas for telescopes that are certainly unconventional. And one is uh, the idea that I interviewed you for a Forbes piece uh, uh, earlier on. What about the, the idea of putting an optical telescope at 60,000 feet up in Earth's stratosphere? You were actually involved in a JPL study that looked into this idea with Lockheed Martin, uh, who would have built the airship. Would that have been applicable to this kind of galaxy survey? Um, it would be uh, in, the, in the following sense, hmm. in that we're always trying to push uh, the boundaries of, of what is possible. And uh, flying missions in space, where you're above the atmosphere, is very, very uh, expensive, uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the people required, the money required, uh, and the time required, time to, to build a space mission. You know, I just got done saying that it's not uncommon for it to take 25 years from uh, idea to, to launching a space mission. So the idea was uh, an optical uh, telescope on an airship uh, in the upper atmosphere uh, is something that could be done in the you know, professional lifetime uh, of an astronomer, uh, within just a, a few years, if we had the airships. Now, NASA already flies uh, telescopes like this on balloons, uh, and 
uh, in the upper atmosphere. And one of the big benefits is that uh, if you get a, a balloon or an airship up there uh, with a telescope, it's above most of the atmosphere. So you're not seeing the twinkling of the atmosphere or the blurring of the atmosphere. So you're getting some of the benefits of being close to space. It's space-like data, mm. but at uh, a much less cost. Now, the idea behind the airship is that if you fly a telescope on a balloon, that balloon is going to float wherever the wind takes it. While we can predict that, we can't control where that uh, telescope and the balloon is going to go. But with an airship, the idea was that you would somehow have the, uh, a powered vehicle that you could park a telescope uh, anywhere you wanted uh, and then use that as a persistent long-term observatory above the atmosphere. So it's uh, just a, a hopefully a cheaper and faster way of getting data like we would get from space. But we really were only thinking of uh, telescopes of a few meters across. So it wouldn't uh, solve the problem of trying to fly a telescope uh, like the one we talked about in this paper that's, you know, hundreds of meters across. That's not uh, likely to be practical anytime uh, from from a balloon or an airship. But just to sum up the, the science drivers for this galaxy survey to end all surveys, you were actually looking to, to under, better understand the uh, star formation rates across cosmic time, how these galaxies formed and evolved over cosmic time, actually kind of map them out over the visible cosmos so we can get a better idea of the structure of the cosmos, the, the voids and the structure, which will help us reveal dark matter, get a better understanding also of uh, acceleration of the universe known as uh, caused by dark energy. Uh, and then what kind of environments do these galaxies seem to form in? And then the other one is... Uh, the metal enrichment history, how did the universe go from, you know, basically hydrogen and helium to iron and uh, the heavy elements uh, of which we are all made? Is that is that kind of like the, the essence of it? Yes. So there were, I would say, two prongs to, to the, the types of questions we wanted to answer with this galaxy uh, survey. One was uh, cosmology. What is the universe made of? How much dark matter, dark energy, and normal matter is there? And how is it distributed uh, throughout the whole universe? And the galaxies then would be uh, a proxy for uh, the dark matter. And uh, by measuring their positions, we would also get some proxy for what the dark energy is doing. That's one uh, aspect of what you said. The other aspect is trying to understand the galaxies themselves and, of course, how those galaxies, and more particularly how the stars in those galaxies, turn uh, hydrogen and helium from the early universe into all the other elements we see uh, in the universe through burning in stars and through exploding uh, supernova. So we'd want to study the galaxies themselves and understand the evolution of galaxies themselves. And so one of the things we said with this study is that if we want to understand the uh, uh, evolution of galaxies, we don't need to look uh, in infinite detail at all the galaxies in the universe. We just need to look in very great detail at uh, an appropriately sized sample of galaxies uh, over cosmic time. That is, if we look at, for instance, 10,000 galaxies in uh, each of many, many different uh, uh, 
bins of cosmic time, we can see how galaxies evolve over cosmic time. And we thought that 10,000 galaxies uh, in each of these tiny bins of cosmic time was probably enough to answer the questions about how uh, metals form and how galaxies form stars and how those stars uh, evolve to uh, spit out the uh, elements we see in the universe. So what about the average person going about their day? What do you think the average person misses about the visible cosmos uh, under which they live? I think uh, the vastness of space. And and the reason I say that is if you uh, are one of those lucky enough people to be able to go outside on a very dark night with no city lights, you know, out in the country, and you can see... uh, Uh, for instance, the Milky Way or the glorious uh, stars that are out there, you're seeing uh, of order thousands of stars. And it just seems, uh, for those of us that don't get the chance to do that very often, it's almost overwhelming how many stars you can see. But if you think about it, uh, you're only seeing thousands of stars uh, and and there are billions of stars in our own Milky Way. So you're, you're seeing... Uh, such a such a tiny tiny fraction of the stars in our Milky Way, and to think that our Milky Way galaxy is just an almost uh, infinitesimal speck within the the universe, it's mind boggling how big the universe is. Uh, even to somebody who's lucky enough to be able to go out and and with their naked eye see thousands of stars in an evening. So, what puzzles you most about? galactic structure in our in our cosmos what puzzles me is there's an interplay uh between dark matter uh and the normal matter uh in in forming uh and evolving galaxies that we just don't quite understand and what we especially don't understand is exactly how uh dark matter uh interacts so the simplest uh, models we have of dark matter Uh, are that it doesn't interact with itself except gravitationally. We call this non-interacting dark matter. Uh, But there are some uh, tantalizing observations that show that, uh, in fact, uh, dark matter may slightly interact with itself in non-gravitational ways. And so uh, we can look at that by galaxies that are colliding with each other. And so what puzzles me is how galaxy collisions can tell us about the properties uh, of dark matter. So finally, uh, when you yourself go out and you do have access to a clear sky, what goes through your own head? What goes through my head is, often is I look at the, the sky and I uh, see, you know, again, if I go out on a very clear night where it's very dark and I see these thousands of stars, I think about how lucky I am and how fortunate I am in my life have been, one, given the opportunity to study this, uh, the cosmos, uh, for uh, my living, and two, to be uh, alive at a time when we're learning so much and we're on the cusp of getting so much great data from all of these telescopes, the Vera Rubin Observatory, uh, Euclid, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, and the James Webb Space Telescope in the coming decade, I feel really fortunate to live at a time when all of this data is going to be coming in and answer so many questions about the universe. But at the same time, what always happens when we get a lot of new data from new telescopes is while we answer questions, 
we, we come up with new questions that we hadn't thought of before. So the new data will undoubtedly raise new questions. And so that's what goes through my mind is I'm lucky to be able to study this and I'm lucky to be at a time when I'm going to have new questions in uh, two and five and 10 years that I don't even think about now. Jason, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Uh, yes. So uh, if they go to uh, Twitter, I'm on Twitter, and I think you, you uh, um, are, are welcome to, to tag me on, on Twitter with this uh, podcast. And also if they uh, do a search for my name, uh, at uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They'll come to my website, which has a contact form, and they can contact me through that. And I'd be happy to hear uh, people's thoughts uh, about some of the things we've talked about today. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Jason Rhodes, thanks so much for helping us better understand galaxies in our cosmos. Thank you for having me. It was a, it was a great opportunity. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>